Hello, and welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Dr. Jillian Peterson. Jillian is a professor of criminology and criminal justice at Hamline University. Jill launched her career as a special investigator in New York City, researching the life histories of men facing the death penalty. Jill has led large-scale research studies on mental illness and crime, school shootings, and mass violence, which have received national media attention. She is a sought-after national trainer and speaker and a regular media commentator in outlets like NPR, CNN, and the New York Times. Dr. Peterson, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Wow, I'm looking forward to your new book that comes out, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic. When is that published? That will be published on September 7th, but it is available now for pre-order. That's awesome. Well, I've already pre-ordered my copy. Oh, good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Jill, it's uh, certainly troubling times here. I was just recently looking at a June Wall Street Journal article talking about the recent spate of mass shootings being among the worst in U.S. history. We had the Atlanta spa shooting, the Colorado supermarket, the Southern California office building, an Indianapolis FedEx facility, a San Jose, California rail yard. It's like it's never ending. What's going on here? Yeah. And in our database, we're finding the same thing. So I remember the last time we talked, we were kind of in the middle of the pandemic and mass shootings had really disappeared. We had one in February and one in March of 2020 before the pandemic hit. Before that, we had been on this upward trajectory in 2018 and 2019. Then the pandemic happened and they were gone. And we see a few reasons for that. One being just the opportunity wasn't there. Schools weren't open. Restaurants weren't open. People were working from home. So we just weren't gathered in mass, which made it difficult to do a mass shooting. We also saw them really fade from the headlines, and we know that there's this social contagious aspect to mass shootings, that when one happens, others tend to happen. And when they were gone from the headlines, we were focused on something else. We were talking about a pandemic that could contribute to them really kind of fading away. And then the third thing we think about is that mass shooters have this sense of injustice, have this sense that they have been personally aggrieved and that their grievance is so much bigger and so much worse than anyone else's. And perhaps during a global pandemic where we were all kind of suffering, people felt less like they were personally suffering. But during that whole time, a lot of us were really nervous about what was going to happen when society started to reopen and when the opportunity presented itself again for mass shootings to occur. And what we saw 
is the worst three-month stretch that we've ever had um, since we started tracking. 2018, there was a stretch that was similar, but this is the worst stretch in two decades where we've had five in three months. Well, that's pretty frightening as uh, businesses start to open up. I know just from our research and discussions with various chief security officers and protective intelligence analysts in the private sector, there is a lot of angst and a lot of worry about returning to the workspace. What would be your advice along those lines? Yeah, I think it's difficult because people have been at home and out of work for so long. During that time, we know that a number of risk factors for mass shootings were increasing. So things like mental health crises, depression, isolation, people, we know rates of suicidality were up. We know that people were spending more time online, sometimes on the dark corners of the internet where radicalization can occur. And we also had record numbers of firearm sales. So we know that that opportunity is there too. And so I think workplaces, schools are nervous, right? When we reopen, we're all returning. What does that mean? I think there are things that workplaces can do as people are coming back to work. And I think the biggest thing is just creating that space to really be checking in with people, whether that's sort of formally um, having check-ins, how are you doing, how are you faring, whether that's setting up informal systems, but carving out the space to really figure out how people are doing. Because we know when a shooting happens at a workplace or at a school, it's an insider who does it. It's somebody who works there, who is struggling. And because they've been out of the office for so long, that sort of baseline isn't very established. It's With other sort of shootings, we see that there's this change in baseline behavior. You can notice when someone's in this mental health crisis or when something's happening, when someone's not doing well. We haven't seen each other in so long that we've lost those baselines. So really reestablishing that, making sure people feel connected, making sure people feel less isolated. Yeah, that's very good advice. Jill, what are some of the trends that you're seeing based on your research at the Violence Project as it pertains to mass shootings? So we have been on this upward trajectory with the worst years on records being 2017, 2018, and 2019. And what we saw is in particular increases in mass shootings that were related to hate Uh, various forms of hate, whether directed at a racial group or at women. Um, We also saw really steep increases in mass shootings motivated by a quest for fame or a quest for notoriety. Um, So people hoping that by doing the shooting that their message, their grievance would spread. Um, So leaving behind things like YouTube videos or manifestos wanting to spread that. And then we saw with the pandemic, they essentially disappeared. And now we're seeing this reemergence. So it's hard to know if we'll stay at these record levels as we continue to reopen. But it is a really critical moment for schools and workplaces where we know that these shootings occur by insiders to start building the systems and the teams that you need in place to be tracking and communicating. So when there is leakage or there is a threat or there is a concern, the steps are already in place for how it's going to be dealt with. Are there any specific sectors in society that you're seeing more of these incidents occur? Um, so 
In terms of workplaces, the most common workplaces where these shootings occur tend to be more blue collar, although that's not always true. We have seen them and certainly at office places, but tend to be more rural, blue collar types of workplaces. We see um, schools, it's been pretty consistent over time, the number of shootings. We have seen a real increase in restaurant and retail establishment shootings. And those are harder to respond to because it tends to be an outsider. So somebody not known to that establishment coming in to do the shooting. And those, a lot of times the person might be in a more severe mental health crisis, or they might be targeting um, like the Atlanta spa shooting, sort of a specific place that represents their personal grievance. So those are the ones, these kind of public spaces, restaurants, retail establishments, movie theaters, malls is where we've been seeing the biggest increase. Is there a standard profile of a shooter? I know when I was an agent, uh, you know, we would have certain behavioral profiles that we would look for, for example, when we were doing protection. Is there a poster child, per se, of a active shooter? There's really not. Um, it would be a lot easier if there was. But that was one thing we've discovered from our research is I can't give you a list of sort of these 20 traits that you can check them off and say, okay, this person is high risk. What we do see is some patterns in the pathway to violence in these individuals' lives. So we see um, an early trauma history is very common, pretty significant trauma. We see individuals that have been radicalized either by people in their lives or on the internet or on social media or in chat groups, people who are validating their thinking. A lot of times perpetrators study other perpetrators and see themselves in those past perpetrators. So that would be certainly a red flag. And then what we see in almost every shooter is a change in their behavior in the weeks or the months leading up to the shooting. But that change kind of looks different for each person. We do see some patterns. So increased in isolating, increased paranoia, increase in abusive behavior, but People will say, yes, I knew something was wrong. There was a change. Something was off, but I didn't quite know what to do or say. Now, we do see slightly different profiles depending on the location of the shooting. So in particular, K-12 through school shooters tend to be 15 to 16-year-old white males with histories of depression, whereas workplace shooters tend to be a bit older. They tend to be more like in their early 40s. Um, and their pattern is typically they have recently been fired um, or suspended from their workplace. And Jill, in your research along these lines, is there any data that separates who that shooter targets? Meaning, do they go after their frontline manager? Is it HR or do they stalk the CEO? That's a good question. What we see consistently across all 180 shootings in our database is that the perpetrator targets the person who represents their grievance. So the perpetrator feels that they haven't been given what they're owed in life, that, um, that something has happened to them, that whatever they're feeling, this angst, this anger, this suicidality, this depression is somebody's fault. And so they target the group, or in some cases, the specific person who they see 
as the person who caused all of their pain. So in workplaces, there are cases where the perpetrator will target specific people. Um, They might target HR, they might target their boss, they might target workers who have been giving them a hard time. And there have been cases where the perpetrator specifically doesn't shoot some people who maybe have been kinder to them, where they will actually turn away from certain people. Um, And I think there was evidence of that happening in that recent San Jose rail yard shooting as he was kind of picking out specific people. But then there's other cases where the person just comes in and starts shooting randomly and it's just sort of whoever is there. So I think there's no consistent pattern there. And in those kinds of scenarios, uh, do you break that down differently from just random spree shooters versus more of targeted violence? Yeah, we don't in our database, but I think you can think about them differently. In a lot of cases, the person might target one or two people specifically and then just start shooting randomly after that. So it's hard to kind of draw that line. This person is clearly targeted. This person is clearly random. A lot of times it's somewhere in between. Um, It is over 50% of shootings. There is a specific target in mind, um, but then they kind of open up beyond that. A lot of times we see that in church shootings where the individual goes into the church planning on killing someone, often wife or girlfriend, because they know that they'll have access to her and she'll be there on Sunday mornings, but then ends up just shooting other members of the congregation at random. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Antec's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. And as you look at these 180 incidents, how many of them take place, for example, at a residence versus a workplace? You know, the thought being For an executive protection team that might be listening to this, how concerned should they be at the home versus the workplace? Oh, that's an interesting question. So in our database, we actually exclude cases that occur occur exclusively at um, residents because those tend to be domestic violence related. So if it occurred in a private home, it wouldn't be something that we tracked and looked at. That being said, a lot of the cases in our database start in a home and then move to a public location. That is most often killing a family member and then moving in to another space. That's less common with workplace shootings. So I would say, based on what we track, actually doing the mass shooting at the workplace would be a higher risk than targeting someone individually at their home. Yeah, that's very interesting. And As you evaluate these 180 incidents, how many are male versus female? It's 99% male. So I think we have four women in the database out of 180. Wow. Well, let me ask you that 
follow-up question, why is that? And that's the question that is difficult to answer. So you're going to get a different answer based on everybody you ask, whether that is because of genes and biology and hormones that men are just more violent, if that is because of socialization of what's happening in homes and in the larger society and the media, that men just resort to violence more often. It's probably some combination of those things. What we see is that perpetrators tend to emulate other perpetrators and see themselves in them. So for example, Columbine High School is one that a lot of other school shooters see themselves in those Columbine shooters. And because of that, they tend to look like in those Columbine shooters. So they tend to be similar age, similar race, similar background because they connect with that. We see the same thing in college and university shooters where there's a lot more students of the university. They tend to be non-white, a lot more Asian and uh, multiracial, and a lot of them see themselves in that Virginia Tech shooter. And so I think part of it is thinking this person got famous and got all this notoriety and expressed their anger in this way that everybody's talking about them and I see myself in them. And so you tend to see the same profile over time. But the question is to sort of whether why men are more violent than women, that is a really difficult question. And we see it when we look at all types of murder. So men commit over 90% of all forms of homicide. In the incidents involving the women shooters, what are some of those examples? Because as you were explaining this to me, Jill, I was trying to remember the last time I, I read about a, a female shooter. Yeah, they're few and far between. So I think the last one was the San Bernardino shooting where it was a couple and one of them was the wife. And I think she was a bit more of the follower than the leader. There was one post office shooting. This was a long time ago where it was a female employee of the post office. And then the other one I can think of is occurred on a reservation, I want to say in California. And it was a woman who was upset with kind of the administration, again, a long time ago. None of these are recent. As you study the 180 incidents, Jill, what surprised you? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the first thing that surprised me was how many of these incidents were suicides and were planned to be suicides, which is not something I had thought about. Hmm. But when I step back, of course, I mean, the person never goes in with an escape plan. They never kind of throw on a disguise and race for the border. They plan this incident to be their final incident. Sometimes that means they kill themselves and plan to do that during the incident. Sometimes they actually plan to be shot by the police. And sometimes they don't really think through it, but there's no escape plan in this. Clearly, either they're going to be killed or spend the rest of their life in prison. And so if you think of these incidents in that way, it kind of changes a bit how we think about prevention and intervention. Because if someone's going in actively suicidal, trying to be shot by law enforcement, then things like having law enforcement on the scene ahead of time or having you know, security procedures in place may be less effective when you're dealing with someone who's actively suicidal. So for me, that was that was a big sort of aha moment in terms of thinking, how can we use what we know from the suicide prevention world to actually stop some of these homicidal events? 
You know, that's fascinating because I know just from investigating and deconstructing various attacks on principles and targeted attacks on embassies and so forth, it's almost like once that individual goes operational, you know, gets in the vehicle, starts heading towards the embassy or whatever, it's really very difficult to prevent that from happening. Yes, absolutely. And that's, you know, I'm a psychologist. I know nothing about what to do when a person actually enters a scene with a gun, right? There are people who are well-trained and well-versed in that. And I think that's where we spend a lot of our time and energy sometimes when it comes to talking about mass shootings, because you have to be so prepared to minimize casualties and to try to end the event as quickly as possible. But as a psychologist, I think about how do we get the person, how do we stop them from ever even waking up thinking they want to do that, right? How do we go back a little bit farther? And if we think they're planning to do that because they're actively suicidal, how can we intervene in our workplaces or in our schools or in our churches in places to catch people before they get to that point? What does that look like and what is that intervention and how do we build those systems? In looking at these 180 incidents, do you have any breakdown off the top of your head as to how many of these perpetrators had come to the attention of law enforcement? It seems like you see that more and more in some of these for example, the Boulder, Colorado shooting and others, you know, some of the first questions that were asked or the Nashville bomber, for example, was there any interaction with law enforcement? If so, how and why and so forth. So is there any data sets on that? That is a great question. And it's a variable that we are literally adding to our database as we speak. So it will be coming out in the next version. It is not something we originally encoded. So we originally coded if they had been arrested for something or if they had a criminal history, but we didn't code had they come to the attention of law enforcement, even if some sort of arrest was never made. And that seems to be something that you're right, is coming up more and more. We actually came across this when we were doing deep dives into social media accounts of perpetrators. And we found that there was a lot of incidents where the social media was concerning and that law enforcement had been made aware or the company had been made aware and you know they maybe did a little investigation they looked at it nothing was done and you see that time and time again that this is somebody who was on the radar but law enforcement they didn't have any tools at their disposal you can't arrest someone for something they haven't done they didn't seem particularly high risk and so we see law enforcement security being put time and time again in these really difficult positions of having to determine how real a threat is and how dangerous a person is and then what what can they do to prevent violence at that point. So we've been thinking about how do we actually bring in more people to those decisions so it's not all in the hands of law enforcement. How do we bring in schools and workplaces and HR and coworkers and principals to be saying, hey, this happened. What do you know about this individual? How do you help us put this in context? And is this someone we should be worried about? And if so, what does intervention look like? How do we hook them up with the services that they need? Jill, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I guess the only thing would be we recently launched a new website just a month or so ago called Off Ramps. So it's www.offslashramp.com. Org. And on that website, we've put a number of resources for individuals who are in crisis or who are suicidal or who are looking to be involved in advocacy. 
we've put a policy section, and then we also have a training section where we filmed some of our training sessions on how to prevent workplace violence, things like crisis intervention, suicide prevention, building crisis response teams. We have handouts for how to build those teams within your workplaces that are free to download. And so that's a resource that we're hoping is helpful for people as they're thinking about this kind of prevention type of work. And what is that website again? www.offramps.org. Awesome. Well, The Violence Project, How to Stop a Mass Shooting Epidemic, is scheduled to be published in September by Dr. Jill Peterson. And I would encourage everyone to pre-order a copy. Thanks so much, Jill, for being on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.